0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi everybody, it's Beth here and it's Radiothon time This is the time of the year when you can donate and keep your favourite radio program on air. All the broadcasters here at 3CR are volunteers and rely on your support to keep their programs going. Radical Philosophy still needs to raise $500 for our target this year. So you can jump online at the website on 3CR and go to the donate page for radiothon and mention that your donation is for radical philosophy and if everybody listening could just donate five dollars we'd have our target of over five hundred dollars thanks very much and enjoy the program like some food for thought Tune into radical philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolff, and Hagengruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. <laughs> Glad you tuned into to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today on the program I'm going to be speaking with Professor Beverly Clack about constructing death as a form of failure. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me.
1: Um, so could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Professor in Philosophy of Religion at Oxford Brookes University in the UK. Um, my first degree was in theology, and my doctorate was in philosophy, sort of history um, of, and philosophy of ideas in some ways, but it was still in the in the area of religion, really. I, um, my thesis was on the suffering of God. So it was kind of philosophical, but it had a, a very strong sort of engagement with ideas of religion. And I think it is religion and how people make sense of their lives that really interests and fascinates me. So I've written on um feminist ideas I'm writing a lot on sort of death. I've published a book on failure and um, I think some of the ideas that we're going to be talking about, I hope Beth, are going to come out of that particular um, book as well, frankly. Um, And I'm just interested in how we find ways through what can often be very difficult um, when we're living, if I'm really honest. Um, And so it's the struggles of life that I'm kind of interested in um, and particularly yeah, particularly how that might manifest itself in the lives of women.
0: So, you've partly answered this, but what was it that inspired you to study constructing death
1: as a form of failure? Well, I've always been interested in death. I think I'm one of those people who likes all the things that a lot of people would think of as morbid or a bit difficult or dark um, in some way. And um, I think what happened, actually, it was a conjunction of events, if I'm really honest. There was a very specific personal event, which was that um, I suffered a miscarriage. And um, it really it was a very bad one. And I nearly died. And it was one of those ones where I suddenly was confronted with the fact that I was as um, immortal as I perhaps thought I was. I was in my mid 30s at the time. And it was that that kind of spurred me on to think a little bit about death, but also ideas of failure, actually, because there was a real sense that in not producing a child, I'd somehow failed. So, on the personal side, there was that I failed as a woman in what is often seen as the task for women. Um, And then the second event was actually more professional, which was that I I was supposed to be writing a book on Freud, and I did eventually write a particular book on Freud, but not this one. And um, I'd completely botched it up, and I couldn't do it, and I just wasn't interested in it, couldn't engage with it at all. Um, I had a meeting with my line manager, and because we all live in the academy in a kind of publish or perish kind of um, place, he was a little bit upset that I hadn't you know, produced this book. I mean, the notions of production are quite interesting here, I think, but anyway. And um, he said to me, well, what, well you're gonna to have to do something. So what are you gonna write about? And so I said, well, I'm, I'm gonna write about failure and that was because I really felt like a failure so it was it was kind of a very personally driven I think most of my research actually if I look back on it really is and um, it, it was out of that really and one of the things that came out of that was really the way in which some of our social models of what it is to be human have really been dominated by individualist thinking that's been shaped by understandings of what it is to be a human being in a in a marketplace, basically. Um, So I I got very interested in some of those kind of neoliberal styles of economics where everything is about financialization. Can you make money out of this? Um, Everything is a marketplace, including things that before would not have been part of a marketplace. So things like education. And um, those were the things really that drove my interest was how a particular social context was then also shaping people's experience of their own lives. And then what that means when you suddenly bring death into the equation, which, frankly, all of us have to face and it will be our own death, inevitably. But it's also the death of those around us, too. And I felt that the narrative of kind of achievement, success, personal drive, acquisition, all of those things just didn't make us very well prepared for dealing with the limits of life. And death is, I suppose, the ultimate limit.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point you made. It's sort of what's expected of you. And I think if if a woman doesn't have children, people say, why didn't you have children? But it's probably probably a better question to ask somebody with a
1: child, why did you have a child? Yes. yes, (laughs) Yeah, well, it's intriguing, isn't it? It's a very interesting thing, and I think it was one of those things where it brought me up short against the, the kind of the boundaries of embodiment at some level, you know, that actually we might like to think we can be all kinds of things and do all kinds of things, and we're told most of the time, you know, have your dream, You can fulfill it. And then there are some things where these things are out of your control. And um, I really found that a fascinating and terrifying idea in some ways um, and really wanted to explore it. But the weird thing for me as I explored it was that it was actually quite liberating. Because when you recognize the limits of existence, you can start thinking differently about what might give meaning to life. And I think we often put ourselves under terrible pressure to be the perfect person or the ideal person. Um, I think it's Martha Nussbaum who says some quite interesting things about the way in which the ideal of a life can be really distorting and upsetting. And what things like sickness or death do is they challenge that idea that we are in control and that really, um, I suppose, all we are getting control of is our response to events, really. But that, in a way, that's a that's a really positive thing. You know, we can actually find ways through these things. Not always, of course. And I think one of the things I've always been quite keen on recognizing is that there is a kind of tragic dimension to life, and things aren't equitable. Not everybody plays on the same playing fi- field. But I think we need to accept. Well, not accept it, but to recognise it, perhaps, rather than saying, well, you can be whatever you want to be, which I think is actually a very dangerous thing to say in some ways, because then it almost automatically opens up the door to disappointment and upset. Whereas perhaps we can we could talk a little bit differently about what is it that actually makes a life meaningful? And usually it's things like friendships, relationship, um, having a sort of a sense of yourself as part of the social space where you live. Um, so I don't know, there are lots of things that I think come on the back of this. Um, I realise now that I'm not really talking specifically about death, am I? No, well, we're going to get to that. Um, in, in what way is neoliberal success defined? Mm. Well, this, I th- again, I found really fascinating because I was interested in how that notion of um, financialization of every area of, of life. You know, that all that matters is the market. All that matters is making money and acquisition. That's equatable with the good life. Um, and I think that idea of sort of, I suppose, neoliberalism is effectively a kind of very specific version of liberalism. So it starts with the autonomous, rational subject, and then it places that rational subject in a marketplace. And that's really the arena where you work out value. You, know, you are supposed to achieve. You're supposed to become successful in those terms. And of course, the big problem with things like sickness or death they immediately confront that as something that isn't really sustainable because we're not always independent, capable um, individuals. Actually, we're often dependent, incapable, vulnerable. And I think what I really wanted to do in the work around this was to see those things as actually really valuable and not things to be shied away from. Because they're actually the things that kind of frame how we as human beings engage with life. Um, And if we're not to live lives that are, frankly, illusory and fantastical, we need to engage with those limits. Because when they come, and they will come, they can often shock us so much that we don't, we kind of almost are like completely off balance. Why has this happened to me? Is often a question. But of course, you know, the world isn't isn't set up in a way where things won't happen to us. And I suppose that's what I really wanted to explore was that that actually might be an opportunity in some ways, you know, in terms of actually how we think about our lives, how we live them, how we experience life more richly in the real sense of the word. Because I'm not convinced that buying stuff ultimately is the thing to found a life on.
0: No, no, it certainly isn't. Alice,
1: could you explain about death and failure? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think when we have this kind of idea that we're supposed to be capable all the time, that we're supposed to be invulnerable in some way, when death comes, it can be seen as being something like a failure. It can be seen as something that's accidental rather than inevitable. Um, One of the stories that I make much use of in some of my work on this is Tolstoy's Death of Ivan Ilyich, where he, um, it's a very short book, where he he explores what would happen if somebody who'd never given a moment's thought to the fact that they will die, who'd surrounded themselves with all the trappings of a bourgeois life, is suddenly faced with the fact that he's dying. And how is he going to make sense of this? And um, one of the elements in the story that I think is very powerful is when his friends try to rationalise what's happening. So Tolstoy t- kind of takes you inside their heads and they look at Ivan dying and the dead Ivan eventually and they're horrified by this and shocked by that knowledge that one day this will happen to me and immediately fall back on this position that says, well, it was an accident that happened to him and I'm going to be much more careful and I won't have to die. And on the one hand, we can laugh at that and go, well, of course, that's not true. But on the other, I think that is a very um, universal in many ways, way of engaging with death, that idea, well, of course, we're not, We're not gonna die, everyone else might, but we're not going to. And so I think we put up a lot of defenses around death, one of which is this idea that death can be understood as a failure. Um, It could be a failure on the part of the person who's dying or died, um, and it might also be seen as, you know, a failure if um, somebody goes into hospital and they're not cured, you know, that there's a, fa- a medical failing there. Um, Atul Guwandi, I think, has written very, very well on this, about the way in which the training of doctors, and he's an oncologist, the training of doctors doesn't really open up the terrain of death and dying because of the way in which it it suggests kind of medical failure as opposed to medical success so I think a lot of things get caught up in this idea that death is a failure rather than death is something that is inevitable is part of life and I don't think we do any service to either the dying or indeed ourselves when we think about death in that way
0: yeah, that that is a really good point. I mean, imagine um, that doctors would feel like that. Oh, look, I've had you know five patients die today. Oh, you know, I've I've failed them. Mm. Mm. So yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: So, so I think there's, uh, and again, I think the it's it, what I kind of liked doing this sort of work, and I always like that kind of um, almost that like excavation. I love looking into well, what are the ideas that support some of our some of our ideas, our understanding. Um, as I say, I'm quite, I'm I'm very interested in religion. You know, what is it about um, religious ways of thinking? Um, I should also say that I am a practicing Christian. So it's not that I'm kind of somebody who's just got it as a sort of you know, thing out there. But the thing that I always think is quite interesting is that we often talk about religion being forms of de- death denial. You know, that that's actually a way in which we say, well, of course, we won't actually die because we're going to live forever. Um, I think what I find interesting is that just as that is a kind of denial, I think what's happened in post-religious societies is we've still got that fear of death, but we haven't really got that structure. So we're still trying to find ways of saying, well, of course, we're not going to die. It's just that we come up with alternatives um, and particularly in a materialistic culture, I think a lot of the time it becomes about grounding ourselves in the things that we own and the things we acquire, that they give us a kind of security. Um, and of course, it's an illusory security, particularly when we're facing, well, potentially the death of the planet. And is it that we've, again, we've constructed this idea that death isn't isn't a reality and We've thought about ourselves as somehow being separate from the rest of the natural world. And I think that's another aspect that I'm really keen to develop in some of the stuff I'm doing at the moment, because I'm actually writing a book that is just on death. Um, and I really want to look at that. I want to look at how our attitudes to death and dying are actually quite destructive when we're thinking about things like the crime, the climate emergency, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So. What is it that makes it difficult to to know quite what to do with death? Mm. Well, I think this is where academics can be the worst people to ask this question, because in some ways, I think philosophy itself can become almost like a form of denial. You know, we write about death in a very abstract way, a way that puts it at arm's length. And um, we have our nice formulations and um, we kind of present quite stripped down arguments that don't really put in to the mix the emotional aspects of this. Um, and one of the things that I'm finding quite um, challenging, shall we say, is writing a book on death where I really want that to be in there. Because I think our responses are actually really significant. And I guess it's partly, I'm I'm, what am I, 50, 57 now. Um, so I'm heading into that, well, I'm in that zone, which um, isn't there a statistical anomaly where if you can get out of your 50s and 60s, your life expectancy shoots up because there's something about these these years where a lot of people do. Um, have serious illnesses and die and I've had quite a few friends in the last couple of years probably five who have um, had terminal illnesses and have died and um, I'm trying to engage with what they've said and what I felt about that as well because I think I think our own feelings of fear disbelief how we want to push things aside are actually very significant for thinking about death and how we might engage with it because the problem is that i think if we can't if we can't have conversations with people who are in those positions i think we actually diminish not just their experience but also our own because it's almost like we we don't have The humanity to be able to engage with their pain or suffering or fear because we're afraid ourselves. And I think that's why all of these constructions around death is something that will happen to somebody else are actually so destructive. They're not just about, well, we've got to keep society going, because if we all recognise that our time is limited, perhaps nobody would want to do the kind of work we do. No, I mean that was, I don't know what it's like in Australia, Beth, and you'll have to. You know, tell me, but here after the lockdowns um, through the COVID period, a lot of people in their fifties decided they weren't going to go back to the jobs that they've been in because it was like a wake-up call. It was like, well, actually, do I want to do I want to spend my life doing this? I'd I'd much rather be with my family, my friends. I've discovered other interests and occupations that I want to um, explore. Work has actually become quite a minor thing rather than a major thing um, and i'd be interested to know if that's the same in australia whether there was that kind of period i, mean, I think unfortunately here because we've got a cost of living crisis that is just horrific i think a lot of people are having having to go back to work but i think it's interesting to me that a lot of people were going well you're telling me that works the area where i'm going to find satisfaction and all the rest of it but actually it isn't
0: No, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, Yeah, I I suppose it it was pretty much the same here. And I think that a lot of people had their hours cut back as well. And they realised how, how nice it would be to work part time. And then when they were asked to go back to full time, they've said, no, no, I'm I'm staying part time now, because I've realised there's, there's so much, there's so much more to do. And, And especially with the COVID deaths, I mean, we're still on an average of probably over 20 a day and no one's speaking mm. about it anymore oh. I mean I know it's yeah, a lot yeah. higher in the UK so we've got yeah. you know, a, a smaller population here but it's like I think that in the beginning it was so shocking and everybody was shocked and now it's sort of like I think that people can't keep up that level of grief all the time, mm. and it's sort of almost like they've blocked it out of
1: their mind, and so no That's just my theory. I think I, you're right. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there is something about uh, you know that kind of real mix of feelings that happened, particularly I think in the first lockdown, that it was really anxious, and for people like me who had jobs where you could effectively work from home, which by no means was everybody. Um, and I think it's quite shocking here that a lot of the people who were the frontline workers have have gone back, effectively gone back to jobs where they are not being respected for the for the kind of the work they did during that period. Um, and I think it's almost like the government wants us want us to forget that rail workers, for example, were frontline workers. Mm. You know, they really did put their lives on lives on the line, basically. Um, but I think that kind of um I think that that fear of imminent death. I don't think you can kind of sustain that. And I think that is, so perhaps that's the, that's quite an interesting point for me, actually thinking about some of the things I want to do with this idea of what it is for a book called Why, Why Death Matters. And um, I think the, the idea that it is something to bear in mind because of the fact that we have such limited lifespans, what do we really want to be investing our lives in? know what is it that makes our lives meaningful and um just sort of thinking about how we how we do live um and then saying that always makes me so aware of um the potential elitism of that position when so many people don't have a choice actually about how they live um so you know it's um it's, it's it's really interesting I'm really loving writing this book at the moment because it's really pushing me a lot um in terms of how do you write in a way that is kind of um Truthful, actually, as well as philosophical. And not, those things I don't think necessarily always go together. No, they
0: probably don't. So <laughs> how do we go about living well with death
1: and loss? Yeah. Well I think it is about how we appraise our values and I think I don't mean that just as individuals because I think societies need to do this as well. That I think we need to start thinking much more about what makes for a fulfilled human life than we currently do. I think everything's got very skewed around work and money basically. Um, and I think we need to be thinking a little bit more about, well, what makes for a healthy society? What kind of society do we, do we want? And I think the disparity between, um, rich and poor is unsustainable, to be perfectly honest. I think that's a a massive issue that needs to be addressed. And at the moment, I don't see much energy for that. Um, But I think that has to be addressed. So I think there's a social dimension to this. And then I think in terms of our own lives, I think it is being aware of the fact that our lives are part of something that is Um, a lot bigger than ourselves which is um, the universe the natural world and um, that features like death are actually part and parcel of that and that we have to come to some some sort of accommodation with that knowledge but that it actually once we kind of take that into the equation might make us think differently about the things we do and the things we prioritize Um, and I'd like there to be more political will around that to be perfectly honest that rather than try and just push people through a system we could actually think about well what does it mean to flourish as a human being and what are the things we need as a society to do that because we all need each other I mean I think that was again the one of the massive lessons of the of the COVID years, and still is in some ways, is that we're all dependent on each other and nothing was shown us more clearly than the fact that it wasn't just about my health, it was about your health, it was about all of our health. And um, I think I would love to see us really sort of grapple with some of those things that came out rather than just desperately want to go back to the status quo, which frankly, wasn't that great.
0: It's interesting you're speaking about religion because I, I know the Buddhist philosophy, they speak about death a lot and they, they have, you know, like a, a lot of literature on it
1: and other yeah. religions don't. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to look at how people interpret different religious traditions, um, because one of the things, and there's I same I'm a practicing Christian. And the thing that always amazes me about some of the attitudes to Christianity, sometimes by Christians themselves, frankly, is that um, the very idea that at the heart of it, you've got suffering and death, you've got the cross. That seems to me absolutely there. It's like we're not going to pretend that this doesn't exist. That is there. I think a lot of people don't like that particularly and would be much happier rushing on to the resurrection because that bit seems, you know, oh yeah, that's the bit we want. Not the bit. This about the suffering and the death. Um, so I think a lot of when you actually start digging into religions, I think a lot of them have far more complicated things to say about death and dying and life than sometimes they're given credit for. And I do think it's fascinating that you have some traditions where it's absolutely there. You know, suffering is part of the human condition. This is actually what it is to be human. Whereas I think we've kind of got used to the idea that suffering is some sort of offense. You know, it's a kind of an offense against us. And that death is definitely seen as an aberration. Now, obviously within something like my home tradition, the Christian tradition, figures like Augustine certainly saw death as an aberration this came about through sin but then you've got other figures who saw that quite differently so I think it's Julian of Clennam has an idea that it's about life you know this is just how life is and I think it's that bit about how you reincorporate ideas of death into living that I kind of most interested in because it always seems to me that when I reflect on death it feels like yes it's frightening because I, I like I love talking like this I really enjoy it you know I really enjoy thinking and I enjoy doing all of those things but in the end I know that you know there'll come a point where I'm not doing those things hopefully not too soon but um, and I kind of want to at least think about the implications of that really and particularly for how I treat other people as well because I think that's the other thing if we treat other people as being themselves potentially vulnerable I think we might end up with better understandings of society you know that rather than see one group over there as a bunch of failures who deserve everything that's coming to them perhaps if we saw ourselves as all kind of living under the shadow of death perhaps we'd actually treat each other more kindly mm,
0: yeah yeah well you never know when you when your number's up <laughs> is there anything else <laughs> <laughs> to put it bluntly i love that <laughs>
1: is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered but i love having these sort of conversations because in the end i think it's through conversations like this that we're able to kind of engage with the things that trouble us actually and um i'd love there to be more spaces for this kind of this kind of discussion, actually, because I think we're getting a bit used to having a, a public discussion realm that's really about people shouting at each other, actually. And I think it's much nicer to have conversations where we can kind of engage and think about these things a little bit more deeply. So thank you very much, Beth. I've enjoyed the space to do that with you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no, it's been great having you on the, on the program. And I've been speaking to Professor Beverly Clack about constructing death as a form of failure. Well, that's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And do stay tuned for Dinosaur Prize Surprise.